Approximately 2,700 women are serving their time at Florida's Lowell Correctional Facility, the nation's largest women's prison. Prisons aren't meant to be inviting or comfortable, but Lowell is, well, not like other prisons. And even for a veteran crime reporter like the Miami Herald's Julie Brown, it's not a place that's easy to forget. It's almost like walking into something that's haunted in a way, you know, with with, with kind of uh, eerie, there's an eerie feeling about it, like, you know, what you know, what if these walls could talk kind of feeling like it's it's there's a haunting quality about I think and I've been in a lot of uh, Florida prisons, but there's an especially haunting quality about the women's prison. Julie heard stories of atrocious mistreatment at Lowell. Inmates were beaten. Rats and cockroaches were common visitors in the kitchen. Medical treatment was scant. Sex with officers was a way to ensure monthly toilet paper, rations or decent food. Sex between officers and inmates is, of course, illegal. But if Lowell inmates reported such incidents, they risked being put in solitary confinement, or worse. The stories stuck with Julie. I don't know, perhaps because I'm uh, because I'm a woman, too, that you just look at and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't imagine um, having to leave my children and be in a place like this for 15 years and completely missing them growing up, completely you know, not even really getting to know my own children. Today we'll hear what it took for Julie to uncover these stories and bulletproof her year-long investigation into Lowell. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. ugly and you needed to talk to the warden about something that was probably serious or something that you needed or whatever you needed to go find a pretty girl to do it don't even come talk to him if you're ugly it's a lose-lose situation for anybody involved in that and then once you want to stop you can until he's done with you 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 don't stop that's what former inmates told julie brown as part of a video series that went along with the herald's reporting the women she interviewed shared stories of how sex with officers became a tool for survival the officers would give these women a choice. Have sex with me, or not enough toilet paper for the week. If women in Lowell wanted something like perfume, makeup, or cigarettes, sex was one of their main bartering tools. Prisoners typically didn't file any complaints about this kind of behavior. If they did, their situations could change for the worse. That's what happened to Latondra Ellington. In 2014, the Lowell inmate feared for her life after she reported seeing an officer having sex with another inmate. Latondra told her aunt she had been threatened by the officer, known as Sergeant Q. She was moved to a different part of the prison after her aunt called in, saying she feared for Latondra's safety. An inmate dies in prison one day after family members called, claiming a sergeant there had threatened to beat her to death. Florida Department of Corrections records show that LaTondra Ellington died on October 1st at Lowell Correctional Institution in Ocala. Her aunt LaTondra's death was the starting point for Julie's investigation into Lowell. Her death offered a glimpse into the corruption, fear, and abuse going on in the prison. Emails, letters, and phone calls started to pour in. Julie got tips about loved ones being abused or killed in the Florida prison system. She had a year-long investigation on her hands.
one thing would be vital to her investigation, documents from the Department of Corrections corroborating inmates' allegations of abuse. But the DOC kept putting hurdle after hurdle in her way. The first few times she requested inmate complaints, officials told her she hadn't asked for the right items in the right way. It was a learning process that I had sort of um, um, gleaned from all the other stories that I had had to obtain evidence and, and records from. It, it's just with a whole series of things that I learned. Um, just certain documents, well, we can get this from the inmate's classification file to verify this part of it. We can get this from the incident reports. We can get this from the log of the day that the inmate said that this happened. We can get the per- this in the officer's personnel file. So she figured she'd go to the people who knew the complaints the best, the inmates themselves. They gave her specific details about the documents that allowed her to refine her requests. She went back to the DOC and slowly began accumulating records from Lowell. And they were the ones that would say, oh, I saw something about that on on our Facebook page. You heard that right. Lowell's former inmates had a Facebook page. They told her she could request access to the group page, so she did. And with a click of a button, she had access to a network of women who had been in Lowell. Some of the women became sources, while others served as a means of verifying or disputing claims the Department of Corrections made. That was a big part of the story, really, that Facebook page, because anytime I found out that something had happened at the prison, I would put a note on that Facebook page. And toward the end of the project, the um, uh, prison system was trying to discredit my series even before it was published. They knew what was coming because of all the questions that I had to ask them and all the information I needed. So they started trying to discredit me by saying, well, wait a minute, we don't do, um, we don't do uh, dialysis. There was a woman that allegedly died because her port for her kidney dialysis kept popping out of her arm, and she literally bled to death because they never fixed it. So the prison system said, well, that's impossible because we don't even do kidney dialysis at all. And so I put a note on the, uh, on the, on the page, and I said, uh, I'm being told that there was no kidney dialysis at all, and I had all these women come on and say, that's absolutely not true. I was getting dialysis, you know. So it really served a good function for me to to help uh, confirm a lot of things that were going on at the prison. Julie also needed to talk with women still incarcerated at Lowell. But getting these women to essentially serve as whistleblowers came with its own set of risks. She knew there was a possibility that if inmates talked, there could be potentially dangerous and unintended consequences. Well, I was frightened because, you know, this is a big responsibility. I don't want to have to interview these women and find out that they were beaten up the next day. Um, And it is a concern because one of the biggest things that inmates throughout the prison system are afraid of is retaliation. Um, And it happens all the time every day. So Julie Brown met with Julie Jones, secretary of the Florida Department of Corrections, to ask her for personal assurance that nothing would happen to the women she talked to. And she got Jones's word. Julie Brown talked with more than 10 inmates, current and former, and interviewed some of them nearly a dozen times. It's a horrible experience um, being in prison, period, but being in Lowell is particularly, uh, it's a very ugly place. Um, you can tell that by reading the stories, the kind of things that go on there. And it's very emotional for them. So to open that up is difficult. It's funny because um, my editor kept saying to me, well, you know, you should be able to just 
you know, you have all the interviews done, just, you know, write it up. And I sort of had to explain to him, um, look, they don't just come right out on your first interview and say to you, oh, by the way, I was having sex with a corrections officer who uh, told me that if I didn't have sex with them, uh, they weren't going to give me toilet paper for the, for the month. I mean, they don't come out and tell you that on your first interview. A lot of inmate stories really struck Julie, but one in particular really stood out. It involved a woman named Casey Hodge. Hodge had been living with a couple who was cooking and selling meth. She had been homeless and a drug user herself. The couple agreed to let her live with them, and in exchange for drugs, Hodge agreed to tell police, if they ever came around, that the couple's drugs were hers. And in January 2012, they did. Hodge was sentenced to three years in prison. During her time at Lowell, it took nearly a year to get a doctor's appointment for her glaucoma. Hodge is legally blind and has a glass eye. She told Julie about all kinds of humiliating experiences in the women's prison, including the time corrections officers ordered her to remove her glass eye to make sure she wasn't hiding anything in her socket. She was the one that um, also was uh, had an officer tell her basically that if you don't have sex with me, you're going to go into solitary confinement, and you know you're going to you know you're going to regret it. Casey Hodge has since left Lowell, but it's clear the experience has scarred her. When Julie caught up with her, she was living in an apartment. And she kept everything, all her <laughs> worldly possessions in a little, like, laundry basket um, because she doesn't know when she's going to, you know, she might not be able to pay the rent and, you know, when she's going to get kicked out. It was hard for these women to open up about their experiences, but many felt empowered by sharing their stories. Maybe they would be able to help the women they had left behind. The Department of Corrections wasn't exactly pleased with the Herald's reporting. As the stories began to run, they came out with press releases breaking down the articles point by point, claiming the Herald got it wrong. But the department couldn't ignore its own voices. Corrections officers also talked to Julie, and they shared stories that proved inmates weren't just making things up. Julie Jones and the people at the Florida Department of Corrections, um, you know, they think these stories are all motivated by uh, inmates, and I said, you'd be surprised. Some of my best sources are corrections officers who still work in the system or, or who did. Uh, because, you know, the same thing I was I covered police corruption before I uh, embarked on this project. The, the, the good cops, the good corrections officers really don't want the bad corrections officers in the system. They want to see them go too, because, the, you know, you think about it. Um, it, it can't if you're good and you want to do everything the right way, it's very hard to do your job when the people around you are all corrupt. That's what Baron Bergner wanted to do. He had worked in the Department of Corrections for nearly a decade before he came to Lowell, starting as an officer and working his way up to a sergeant. The staff at Lowell, there's at least 40% that are, that are corrupt, that are not doing the, the right thing. Some of the corruption uh, goes on from sex, drugs, money. Um, there was just all kinds of corruption at Lowell. In uh, June, while I was out for surgery, I decided that it was time for myself to leave Lowell because I was tired of seeing all the corruption. I was tired of dealing with it, telling supervisors every day and um, day and night that there's dirty staff at Lowell and that they're not doing anything about it. 
Bergner's interview helped Julie address a major challenge at the core of her reporting. So much of her story involved readers trusting the stories of criminals. It would be easy to assume inmates were lying or at the very least exaggerating. Bergner's testimony helped validate everything Julie was hearing. The sex between inmates and officers and how it, it was basically almost like, you know, uh, sexual extortion or, or um, you know, some people said it's almost like sex trafficking, what they were doing in that prison by sort of, to some degree, saying to the women that if you don't have sex with me, your life is going to be twice as miserable as it needs to be. But if you have sex with me, I'll take good care of you and you'll get, you know, decent food sometimes. And, you know, I, I heard the women say it, but when I had Bergner and other officers confirm for me that that's what was going on, it was, it was still surprising to me because I thought, how does this happen, you know? How, how it's almost like a sex slavery inside these walls of this prison. And remember the death of Latondra Ellington, the inmate we mentioned earlier in this episode who reported seeing an officer having sex with a prisoner? Well, Bergner was the one who took down her allegations. The tone of voice that she had, um, her crying, um, you can tell, especially after 10 years of working with the department, you can actually really tell when an inmate's being sincere and when they're not sincere. Um, and she just seemed so sincere and distraught. She started to tell me what she was upset about and then um, some other inmates had come in the dorm and then she automatically just stopped and she kind of broke, you, you know, just stayed really quiet. And so I had her fill out a witness statement. After I took uh, the report um, that morning from uh, inmate Ellington, um, several staff members had threatened me um, for taking the report from that inmate because they knew that it was true what she was putting in the report and they didn't want that to get out. They actually pulled me off to the side away from uh, a bunch of the inmates and staff and they threatened to uh, take care of me in the parking lot is what they told me. Julie decided to take a hard look at the details surrounding Latondra Ellington's death. A report by the Department of Corrections stated LaTondra had died from heart disease. But Julie felt something wasn't quite right with that. She's been on the crime beat for a while, and the whole thing just seemed fishy. LaTondra's aunt had called worried about her niece's safety, and the next day she's dead. Something didn't add up. So the Herald had a separate forensics team examine the original autopsy. They found that LaTondra's heart wasn't diseased enough for that to have been the cause of death. But they did find an elevated level of a certain blood pressure medicine in her system, enough to have possibly caused her heart to fail. I guess most journalists would understand when I say I was really excited about it. Um, it was because I wasn't upset that that's what happened, but I was excited because I thought, you know, maybe somebody's going to be held accountable because how does this happen? You know, how does she have an excessive amount of, of blood pressure medicine in her system? She had been taking blood pressure medicine. She knows what she's supposed to take and what she's not supposed to take. Anybody does. I mean, I take blood pressure medicine. I know what I'm supposed to take. I mean, it, it, to me, I was excited because it showed that either one of two things, either it was totally that they um, really, it was um, criminal almost medical neglect that they gave her too much medicine or they poisoned her on purpose. And I had had too many other cases, like I said, where people had had overdoses of their regular 
medicine that I, I sort of suspect, suspected that perhaps she could have been poisoned. You know, all you have to do is break up those pills and put it in her food. I also thought it was pretty, um, um, you know, suspicious that she was alive at breakfast and she was dead by lunch. Latondra's family files a civil lawsuit against the state of Florida, citing the Department of Corrections' failure to recognize that its employees threatened inmates, used excessive force, and were sexually inappropriate with inmates. They also said she was the victim of medical neglect. Latondra had four kids. She was 36 when she died. I think that um, the family members are pretty, um, they feel pretty powerless to do anything. It's very frustrating to see uh, your son or daughter suffer and not be able to do anything. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, um, you know, it, it makes them angry and, and makes them grief stricken that um, they know that their loved ones are going through or went through something so horrible. But for some people, the answer to the terrible conditions at Lowell is simple. Don't end up there in the first place. The family members are keenly aware of that. And a lot of them are good, you know, um, law abiding people who who believe that their son, daughter, mother, whatever, committed a crime, and and they agree that they should be behind bars, but they say, look, being behind bars is one thing, but but they shouldn't be tortured. You know, this is in a third world country. Four months after Julie first published her investigation, Lowell has seen some changes. I'd like to think that maybe I saved some lives. Um, I know they've made a lot of changes in in some aspects of it, and, you know, so I'd like to think that I helped some people um, that may have been beaten, that maybe aren't, weren't beaten because more people are watching and, and there are some things that are changing. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I, I hope that um, with this little story that it will make change for the women that they'll be able to get, you know, basic necessities without having to, you know, barter their bodies to get them um, in the prison system. I, I hope that, that things are changing. A corrections officer was arrested in early February for bribery and smuggling contraband. Another officer left the prison. The Department of Corrections wasn't able to prove a case against him. That's one of the hard parts for the state attorney in Marion County where Lola's located. The Department of Corrections also recently hired two seasoned crime investigators to head up investigations. One of them is stationed at Lowell. And for the inmates, it seems life's been getting better, bit by bit. I kind of judge how bad the prisons are by my mail. I get a lot of letters uh, uh, complaining about one particular prison. I know that prison has a lot of problems. And at one point, I got a lot of letters from all people, and I haven't gotten hardly any in a long in a while. So I'm hoping that that means things are are, are better. It's hard to know. I'm not in there. I do have some sources that are in there. Um, officers who. Uh, call me from time to time. In fact, they called me last week when they made that arrest and, and said that they felt that things were were better, um, that they are trying to get at some of these um, problems and try to make arrests and try to change some things and discipline people. And if you can't even arrest people, you can certainly try to find a way to fire them. And the sense that I'm getting is that, 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 that it's, you know, um, that they're, they're trying to make an effort to make, make some change there. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head on over to ire.org slash podcast to browse our archives. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins is our editor. You can find both of our emails in the show notes. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Danielle Vidal. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.